No? Is this on? There we go. All right. I love that song. Uh, that's, I want it at my funeral. So whoever here is at my funeral, make sure that they do that song. Okay. Some of you I know won't be because you're too much older than I am. But some of you, if I live a normal life, uh, but some of you will be. Well, let's ask the Lord to uh, be with us and uh, to open his word to our hearts. And so pray silently and then I'll open us up in a word of prayer. Our Lord, we sing about what is our hope that we will rise and that we will be lifted out of the graves with a new body, no longer a slave to corruption, no longer weak and frail, but strong and glorious and free from all of the corruptions of sin, a body that can stand in your presence holy, blameless, and with great joy, not because of anything in us, but because everything that is in you. And our Lord Jesus Christ, what you have done for us. And so it is your name that we praise. It is your name that we delight in. It is your beauty that is to us um, the glory and desire of our heart. And burn from us everything that hides that glory and that beauty to us. That we would see it more and more clearly as we walk with you in this world. Protect us, guide us always to that end. Keeping our eye on the end of our salvation, the prize as it were, that we would live faithfully to you in this world. And now we ask as we prepare for the table and open your word that you would prepare our hearts, teach us, may you, Holy Spirit, perform your sanctifying work through the word. And to that end we pray in the name of Jesus, amen. Open up your Bibles to 1 Peter chapter 3. 1 Peter chapter 3. We finished our look at the roles of husband and wife uh, last week. Somebody told me that their wife made them listen to the sermon last week twice. We finally uh, dressed husbands. Uh, Trish said, man, you were a little brutal last week. And she said, I guess you can't do that with the ladies, you know, because you're not. Uh, but uh, you were a little bit with the husbands. But hopefully it was encouraging. It is uh, to my life. But we move on past that now to verse 8. Verses 8 and 12 this morning. As Paul is summing up his uh, argument and instructions uh, to the point up to this point and moving us uh, forward through the rest of the epistle. I want to introduce our passage uh, this way this morning by reminding us that in the world, and, and by the world I mean really in the sense of uh, popular culture, and this isn't news, but it presents to us as the ultimate expression of happiness and success and the good life as an unfettered experience of personal pleasure or the pursuit of personal happiness. That's written very into the very founding documents of our country to the Declaration of Independence. The individual pursuit of pleasure and happiness and the pursuit and attainment of that pleasure are the marks of being blessed and what is the highest good. That is the greatest good that many of us in our culture can conceive of. Now sadly, this attitude has influenced part of the church. Certainly in the extreme form, it would be the health and the wealth gospel. That proclaims that God's highest blessing is to experience earthly prosperity, a kind of wealth in this world. The very things that God warns us about loving in 1 Timothy 6. 
that we fall into all kinds of snares. They promote the thing that God tells us not to love. And the idea behind some of that, although there's, there's many, but one is this, that the church's greatest witness to the world is her prosperity. So what marks God's favor and blessing is wealth, is prosperity uh, in this world. And this attitude can subtly creep among, uh, to us, among the larger church, of individuals who reject that theology, who reject health and welfare or health and wealth kind of theology, but nonetheless think sometimes and act sometimes as if success and prosperity are the greatest expressions of God's blessing. I think one way that we could see that is how bewildered we can be when trials come, as if those are not a part of God's blessing and greater work in our life. Consider it all joy, my brethren, when you encounter various trials. In our American mindset, that seems almost antithetical sometimes to the gospel. Shouldn't my life be one of ease and comfort? And isn't that a witness to God? So we can fall into that sometimes as well. Well, now while enjoying God's good gifts in this world produces gratitude in our hearts, God fills us with all kinds of good things for which we're thankful. We particularly in this country enjoy many good things and much prosperity in many ways for which we praise God and we thank Him. But the mature Christian does not find in these gifts the greatest joys of life in Christ, nor see in these gifts the most powerful witness to the gospel of Christ. We, are in, we enjoy them, we are thankful for them, but we put them in their proper place. Rather, the greatest joy of the Christian life is the experience of the forgiveness of our sin the hope that we have in Christ, the loving fellowship that God invites us into by His Spirit with both Himself, with the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit and with other believers, other children of God. That the greatest witness of the world, the mature Christian understands, is not some sort of external success or blessing in life. It is, in fact, conformity to the image of Christ. And, in fact, the greatest witness of the church to the world is a steadfast faith and joy in Christ in the midst of not having those things, in the midst of persecution, in the midst of disappointment, in the midst of trials. And is that that bears witness to the reality of our experience of grace. It's that which bears witness to the reality and the worthiness of Christ, to the treasure that he is to his people, that even if he takes everything away, think Job, we will still worship him. We will still praise him. We may struggle, but he will still be seen as supreme in our affections and in our desires at the end. And this is for the Christian then the truest good life to grow in maturity and faith to grow in holiness, to grow in nearness and intimacy to Christ. Now I say all that because that's where Peter directs us this morning in 1 Peter chapter 3, verses 8 through 12. So let me read the passage and then we'll look at it more closely. So beginning in verse 8. To sum up, all of you be harmonious, sympathetic, brotherly, kind-hearted, and humble in spirit, not returning evil for evil or insult for insult, but giving a blessing instead, for you were called for, this very, for the very purpose that you might inherit a blessing. For the one who desires life, to love and see good days, must keep his tongue from evil and his lips from speaking deceit. He must turn away from evil and do good. He must seek peace and pursue it. For the eyes of the Lord are toward the righteous, and his ears attend to their prayer. But the face of the Lord is against those who do evil." 
So a tremendous way to sum up his teaching to this point, which is instructions to believers of how to live in a world that's hostile to the gospel and how to have lives that witness to the reality of Christ's life in us. Now, before we get to the first point, I want to just make a couple of observations at first related to the structure of the passage and the way that he presents this here. Note that he says, to sum up, to sum up, or in completion, or some of you may have translations that say, finally. What does he mean by this? Well, it's possible that he could be looking forward and saying, finally, but that's really not the best way to understand it. To sum up here, he uses the idea of completeness, a term, really, that complete is a good good way to translate that term. He's looking back all the way back to verse 11 of chapter 2, where he began this instruction of our witness to the world. I, I urge you as aliens and strangers, he says in verse 11 of chapter 2, to abstain from fleshly lusts which wage war against the soul. Keep your behavior excellent among the Gentiles so that in the thing in which they slander you as evildoers, they may, because of your good deeds as they observe them, glorify God in the day of visitation. And that launched into his teaching in which he's instructing the church in the midst of a hostile environment how to live in a way consistent with the gospel that affirms the gospel and bears witness to the gospel and bears witness to the reality of Christ's life in his people. And here he's summing all of that up. He's moving on from that distinct instruction of submission to the Christian character in general that should mark the church of God. And that again affirms the life of Christ in us by our behavior, by the lives that we live. Now, there is here, I think, a a neat division that happens between verses 8 and 9. And this is just for us to notice. In verse 8, there is an emphasis on his instruction to believers. What should characterize the life of believers in relation to one another? So he says, all of you, all of you, Referring to those whom he identified at the beginning of the letter, those who are chosen and born again. These are believers, and these are believers who are the only ones that can obey the command to be of the same mind or to have brotherly love in the way that he's already defined it in this epistle. This is a particular emphasis here, not that we're not sympathetic or kind-hearted to others, but there's a particular emphasis here on the ways that believers treat one another. In verse 9, he transitions to an emphasis on the way that believers then interact to a hostile world. It's hard to conceive in the way that Peter has presented Christians in the church uh, as saying that this evil or insult is going to come from other believers. It is consistent with his theme that that is what we are to expect from a fallen and unbelieving world. Insults, evil. Wrong being done to us in the face of our doing right before Christ and even before the world. And then he grounds all of this in verse 10, quoting from Psalm 34. Now that said, the main heart of the passage is to make clear, again, that the Christian's greatest joy and witness in the world lies in our obedient life of love and grace in the Spirit, walking in near to God and fellowship with Christ, even in light of persecution and trial. Let's notice the first point then. The witness of Christ in the fellowship of believers. The witness of Christ in the fellowship of believers. And that is in verse 8. In verse 8. The world is watching how believers treat one another. 
The world is watching how believers treat one another, how you and I treat one another, particularly in a local congregation and fellowship like this, but even in society at large when we come across other genuine believers. The world watches that and makes an assessment about Christ. The life they see manifest in us is the only life and witness that much of the world will ever see of Christ. It's what they see in us and particularly in the way that we treat one another. Now, that's important to understand as we realize that the consequences of our of our fellowship as believers in Christ does not end merely with our own joy, but it is a testimony to a watching world. Now, he lists here five different characteristics of that fellowship that we are to have. But we're not to look at these so much as five distinct, though they are that, and we'll look at them that way, Five distinct aspects like, you know, sometimes we, are, we, we have sympathy, other times we have brotherly kindness, sometimes we're humble, uh, sometimes we're harmonious, but not the other. But all of these are a, represent the singular reality of the life of the Spirit, the life of Christ manifest in God's people. It's not unlike in Galatians chapter 5, verses 22 and 23 where he lists nine virtues that are a fruit of the Spirit. So the fruit there is singular, and all of the virtues together make up that one evidence, that one virtue of a life that is walking with the Spirit. So love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, self-control. While distinct reflections of the Spirit, collectively they display the singular reality of life in the Spirit. The fruit is not fragmented. You can't say, well, one day I'm going to, today I'm going to work on love, and next week I'm going to work on patience. And then this week I'm going to work on patience, and then next week I'll work on self-control. No. All of these together are displays and aspects and reflections of the singular life of Christ in us and the virtue of what it means, what virtue looks like, Christian virtue, when the life is submitted to Christ. And so it is here. Again, there are five marks of fellowship that are not so much a collection of different traits, but a singular portrait of love in the Spirit lived out among the fellowship of believers. It's a singular picture of the life of Christ in us. It's what it means to be filled with the Spirit. Secondly, this life of the Spirit manifest in the humble obedience of believers marks the church as the singular body of Christ. This morning we will partake of the table the Lord's Supper. We will take the elements, the bread and the wine, and together we will drink them as the Lord instructed us. And in doing that, we are displaying through the symbols of the bread and the wine this body that we are the singular body of Christ. And if you think of it in terms of all of the churches, all of the Christian churches that are doing that and all of the regenerate believers at the same day, the Lord's Day, it is a collective witness to the world that we together constitute the, living, the body of Christ on the earth. That we are the body of Christ. This is said in many places. Let me just give you one. In Romans chapter 12, he says in verse 5, or verse 4, for, we just, for just as we have many members in one body, and all the members do not have the same function, so we who are many are one body in Christ and individually members of it. So we as the body of Christ are linked together. We are bound together to Christ by the Holy Spirit. We are his body on earth. We are the physical expression 
of the reality of Christ on earth. This is a footnote to that. That's why Paul could say, actually in Colossians 2, that he's filling up the afflictions of Christ that weren't completed. And what he means is that there's more hostility that the world still has to unleash against Christ. Christ is now ascended in heaven, and that hostility is borne by his people, his body on earth, that is the church. And so we are the singularly the body of Christ and we should singularly demonstrate these character qualities as bearing witness to the reality of Christ in us. It is an expression of our love for one another. Let me just give you one more passage and then we'll look at these specifically. What is that fellowship to look like? He says in John 17, Jesus praying for the church. He says this, For their sakes I sanctify myself. I I set myself apart as a sacrifice, as the source of righteousness and truth and joy for my people, that they themselves also may be sanctified in the truth. I do not ask on behalf of these alone, but for those who believe in me through their word, that they may all be one, even as you, Father, are in me and I in you, that they may be in us, so that the world may believe that you sent me. So that the world may believe that you sent me. Later he says, I and them, you and me, that they may be perfected in unity so that the world may know that you sent me and love them even as you loved me. So again, our demonstration of these qualities, our demonstration of these virtues as the marks of our fellowship to one another is our witness to the world. A fragmented, arguing, fractioned church that bites and devours its own is the worst witness to the world that could be conceived. So our unity and our love for one another is our witness to the world. And that is where Peter is directing us here. So what does that look like? What does that witness look like? Well, these are wonderful descriptions. Wonderful descriptions. Each one of them precious. Each one of them essential to our life in fellowship with one another. The first he says here, all of you then are to be harmonious. Harmonious. The, the word here actually is to be same-minded. To be same-minded. In this case, although the idea is the same, the ESV has a better translation Here, it's unity of mind. One translation has like-minded. All of them capturing this idea of a sameness in mind, a sameness in attitude, a sameness in thinking among the people of God. Without conflict, that's where the idea of harmonious comes along, working together in unison. The main idea is to think the same as or to share a unity of thinking. Now, It's important to note here that believers differ on a variety of points, both practically and doctrinally. If we look at the church, even among our own fellowship, we'd say there are differences in thinking on certain points of doctrine and on certain practical applications of that doctrine among ourselves. So in what way then are we to be of the same mind? What does he mean by that? Well, interestingly, we can get a feel for it because he uses... Similar phrase, not this exact word, but communicating the same idea with similar language. In Philippians chapter 2, we're familiar with that. He says, speaking of the congregation at Philippi, this is how they are to make his joy complete. He says, by be of the same mind. Later he says, be of one mind. And then he describes it in this way. He says, have this mind in you, which was also in Christ Jesus. 
that which caused him to leave his position existing in the form of God to humble himself and become obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross. In Romans 12, 16, he says to the church, to the believers, be of the same mind toward one another. Do not be haughty in mind, but associate with the lowly. Do not be wise in your own estimation. In Romans 15, 5, he says, now may the God who gives perseverance and encouragement grant you to be of the same mind with one another according to Christ Jesus. Last one in 2 Corinthians 13, 11, he says, finally, brethren, rejoice, be made complete, be comforted, be like-minded and live in peace and the God of love and peace will be with you. There with the great encouragement that we will know that experience of the love of God and the peace of God when this is what marks the fellowship of God's people. So what is this mind? Well, what it does not mean is that there has to be homogenous thinking on every point, practical and biblical. It doesn't mean there has to be complete agreement. That's recognized even in Scripture, even in the epistles himself. And we've looked at it in Philippians 3 before. He says, if any of you have a different attitude, God will reveal that to you also. Realizing that there's a process of growth. There's a difference of opinion. There's some who are coming along in faith. It doesn't mean that we think exactly the same on every point, practical or biblical. That will happen in heaven. It's not going to happen this side of heaven. It doesn't mean that we're complete on, in complete agreement in every area of life and fellowship. The church is made up of individuals at different levels of faith, different levels of knowledge, different levels of experience, different personalities, different situations and context in life, different abilities, and the ways that that shapes our different perspectives. We're not the same. We're not to think exactly the same as robots. It doesn't mean that. And our variety and our differences are actually a good thing because our differences help each of us to grow, right, as we live with one another in fellowship. It, these differences help us to have and enable us to have an increased shared wisdom Not everybody has all wisdom embodied in one person. That's only true of Christ. And so we share with each other's wisdom. It gives variety and color and richness to our fellowship, our diversity and our differences. And sometimes disagreements and the need to overlook faults and to forgive when sinned against, they themselves are a manifestation of the life of Christ in us that reveal that we aren't perfect yet. And there is variety that's good. And then there is... That unity pursued by our forgiveness and our love and our overlooking faults. This is part of our life together, this side of heaven, and it's the context in which the reality of the gospel is displayed. So what does it mean then to be of the same mind? What does it mean to be of the same mind or to have the same mind or to be like-minded? Well, it includes doctrine, of course, sanctify them in truth. Your word is truth. It includes... It includes embracing the same core truths of Scripture that are necessary for salvation. It includes that. But the big idea is this. It is the mind of self-sacrificing love and humility that gives of self for the good of others. It's that simple. It's the mind out of a commitment to Christ, out of faith in Christ, that has a self-sacrificing attitude of love and humility that gives of self for the good of others. That's the idea. That we share that mind of Christ. Again, as he said in Philippians, who gave himself up for us. Who was obedient to the point of death. It's that mind that considers others as more important than yourself. Why? Because of who Christ is and our common faith in him. 
It's the kind of thinking that says whatever we do, whatever gift we have, is to be employed for the building up of the body of Christ in love. It's thinking that is consistent with Christ's own thinking is demonstrated again in his incarnation, his life, and his death. It's thinking that's consistent with the gospel, that's consistent with being in Christ, that's consistent with being indwelled by the Spirit, that's consistent with being of the same body of Christ. That's what, it, that's what it means to be of the same mind. Be pursuing together that same likeness and character of Christ. That same commitment to the truth. That same commitment to live consistent with our end and the hope of the promise that we have in Christ. That's the idea, that we should be of the same mind in that way. That means then when there are disagreements, when there are varieties of personalities, perspectives, and experiences, that means that the way that we approach them with the same mind within our differences is to approach them in a way that we preserve unity in our distinction and even in our disagreement. That we preserve unity, that we preserve and display our oneness in Christ even in those ways that we are distinct and that we are different. So unity is the fruit of being united to Christ and it's the affirmation of Him indwelling in us. It is a display of love. Paul calls that in 1 Colossians chapter 3, verse 14, the perfect bond of unity. Love is the perfect bond of unity. So that's the idea of being harmonious, living together without conflict and without division. We have in our own membership statement that there does not have to be agreement on every point of doctrine. There is for membership the requirement of an understanding of the gospel that is demonstrated and affirmed in a person's life and that where there is disagreement of doctrine and in other areas of life that that will be handled in a non-factious way but will be addressed peaceably with leaders and with others. So that's the idea, our attempt of saying, what does it mean to be of the same mind and live in fellowship with one another where there is diversity among God's people? And I kind of like, even though it's not the most literal translation, harmonious, it does have a picture of what's beautiful. And music is harmonious. It's delightful to the ears. It's a joy to listen to. It's peaceful. It's pleasant. And that should be the character of the quality of us dwelling together. Next, he says that we are to be sympathetic. Sympathetic. This is a compound word that means to suffer with uh, or to share the same feeling. To share the same feeling. It has the idea of compassionate sharing in the distress and the difficulties of others. It's, it's what Paul meant when he said in Romans chapter 12 that we rejoice with those who rejoice and we weep with those who weep. We enter into, we share with those with whom we are members of one another into the experiences of life. We are sympathetic. We share the same feeling. One described it this way. Those who are united by a common spiritual mind should be moved by or be sensitive to the same spiritual emotions. You ever think about that? Believers are the only ones who together can share the same emotions, the same inner experience. We can't share that with an unbeliever. There's certain things we can have in common, sadness and anger and so on and so forth. But there are delights in Christ, response to the truth, hope, love, and faith, and those kind of things that only believers can know. There are spiritual struggles with sin that can only be known by believers. There are encouragements of promises that can only be known by believers, the promises of the truth of Scripture. 
And so there is a way that believers can share in the feelings of one another that we can only do with believers. Again, there is a general human condition. All men are made in the image of God. But then there is a unique experience of life in Christ, of eternal life that is known only among believers. And we are to share in that and to be sympathetic and helpful toward one another. Interesting, this is... I don't really care about this. This is an adjective here. There's a verb form that's used two other times, and that's in Hebrews. And I want to mention those because they're relevant. So it's the same root word, just a, a different form. In Hebrews chapter 10, verse 34, he says this, and he's speaking in Hebrews chapter 10, if you remember that context, of those who are suffering. He's writing to encourage them. It's just before he gives us that great chapter of the hall of faith in Hebrews chapter 11 which was to encourage these believers. But he says before that, in verse 34 of chapter 10, he says, You showed sympathy to the prisoners and accepted joyfully the seizure of your property, knowing that you have for yourselves a better possession and a lasting one. There was a living demonstration of this kind of sympathy. As there was suffering for the gospel, as there was anguish that was being endured by some, the church came together and shared in that anguish. They came alongside, as it were, to support them, to encourage them, to uphold them, to help them to walk steadfastly in the truth. And this would have been particularly applicable to Peter's writers who were experiencing suffering on their own and it was suffering that was even going to increase as history would march on in that particular area even. It's sharing The same suffering, the same experiences. The second usage is probably the most significant for us, and that is in Hebrews chapter 4. You're familiar with this. It says in Hebrews chapter 4, Therefore, 14, verse 14, Since we have a great high priest who has passed through the heavens, Jesus, the Son of God, let us hold fast our confession, for we do not have a high priest who cannot sympathize with our weakness but one who has been tempted in all things as we are, yet without sin. Therefore, let us draw near with confidence to the throne of grace so that we may receive mercy and find grace to help in the time of need. Just as that same mindness we would share with Christ who gave himself up to be obedient to the point of death on the cross, there is a same mindedness that we share and a unity that we share in the character of Christ when we exercise sympathy. Christ himself the eternal Son of God, uniting Himself to flesh in the person of the Lord Jesus Christ. As we said earlier, or prayed, I don't remember, that He was a man of sorrows, acquainted with grief. He suffered. He was tempted. He prevailed without sin. And here, in the writer of Hebrews, it is something that He endured so that He could sympathize with us. He entered into that suffering so that he could help carry us out of it, walk with us in it. He is a sympathetic high priest. It's the attitude of Christ. It's the attitude of Christ he had for us. It's the attitude that we are to have toward one another. It's a spiritual fruit. Compassion and sympathy isn't my natural default. It's not by personality. I have to work on that. And we all do, but the Spirit of God should be is working in us to promote in us the character of Christ. And we are to have that toward others and toward one another. And recognize that the Spirit is prompting us that way and enabling us to do that. Next, we are to exercise brotherly love. 
We are to be same-mindedness. We are to have compassion. We are to have brotherly love. Again, a precious word that speaks of the love of the Spirit that he places in the heart of his people. It's attendant with the presence of Christ in us that we have a brotherly love. As a matter of fact, he mentioned that strikingly, actually, in chapter 1 when he says this in verse 22. He says, Since you have in obedience to the truth purified your souls for what? A sincere love of the brethren. Fervently love one another from the heart. That is at the very essence of spiritual life, is that we have a love for the brethren. We have a love that bears the characteristics of Christ's own love for us. We have a love that bears the characteristics of what we read in 1 Corinthians 13, that we have love one for another. In fact, John would go so far as to say that if we do not have this kind of love for believers, if we do not have this kind of love for one another, that we are in fact suspect as children of God. That we are suspect of children of God. If we do not have this at some level, a uniqueness of our commitment to believers, then John would say we need to wonder, are we believers? That's the level of importance that is put on this divine fruit of regeneration and of salvation. He says in verse 9, No one who is born of God practices sin, 1 John chapter 3. No one who is born of God practices sin because his seed abides in him and he cannot sin because he is born of God. By this, this thing that he'll mention, the children of God and the children of devil are obvious. Anyone who does not practice righteousness is not of God, nor the one who does not love his brother. How can someone say, he says in verse 20 of chapter 4, I love God and hate his brother. He is a liar. For the one who does not love his brother whom he has seen cannot love God whom he has not seen. This commandment we have from him, that the one who loves God should love his brother also. How do we know we love God? What is the barometer or what is the measure of our likeness to Christ? The measure is how much we love his people. How much he loves his children. So if we can quote... Systematic theology, backwards and forwards, and yet we can't be patient with our brother, and we can't be forgiving and merciful toward our brother or our sister in Christ, then how can we say the love of God abides in us and the life of Christ abides in us? No, one of the great demonstrations that is proof of the Spirit of God in us is that there is a same-mindedness, sympathy, and love for those who are in the church, for other believers. And so brotherly love should mark our fellowship with one another. That is throughout Scripture. I don't have time to look at all of them. But it is that character that we read about this morning in 1 Corinthians 13. It's patient. It's kind. It doesn't seek its own. Isn't arrogant with one another. Those things should never be said of Christian fellowship. Never be said. And when they are done, because we do still sin, they should be quickly acknowledged as such, quickly forgiven, Quickly, the person we should move toward an exercise of love. He says again that believers are compassionate or kind-hearted. A tender heart, uh, the ESV translates it. All of those are capturing this idea. It is a deep and sincere, emotional even, aspect to it. Kind of concern 
that we have one for another. It's the mark of Christian fellowship and the demonstration of those who have received grace. He uses this term in one other place in verse 32 of Ephesians 4. He says, be kind to one another. Actually, in verse 31, he says, let all bitterness and wrath and anger and clamor and slander be put away from you along with all malice. Be kind to one another, tenderhearted, forgiving each other just as God in Christ has forgiven you. And the only way that we can do that is to demonstrate what he says lastly in this list, that we are to be harmonious, of the same mind, sympathetic, brotherly, have brotherly love, kind-hearted, and humble in spirit. Humble in spirit. And this really is at the foundation of all of it. It's essentially to have a modest opinion of oneself. I think that's kind of a too weak of a definition, but it is that idea to have a modest opinion of oneself. It is the exact opposite of our flesh and our culture that promotes that you should have a high opinion of yourself. We talked about this when we talked about social media. Social media does not promote humility, nor does popular culture. Vanity and pride and self-will demonstrated just in the fact that somehow we feel like our opinion deserves to be published throughout the whole world to see. So often on things, it's done without graciousness. It's done without mercy and kindness. But that should not mark our fellowship. And I do have to make that mention of social media because if we fail, for those who are on social media, that's where we're going to do it the most. Because we have a certain anonymity, a certain disconnect from the other person as a person. It becomes just another person or another words at the end of a computer and of an impersonal screen. But that is an image bearer of God. And we should demonstrate our social media use should demonstrate this kind of harmonious, same-mindedness, sympathy, brotherly kindness, kind-heartedness, and humility. Humility, which is at the center of it all or at the foundation of it all. It's a mark of a genuine believer. It's the mark of regeneration. Peter's going to say this again, that we should clothe ourselves with it in this beautiful language in verse 5 of chapter 5. Younger men, likewise, be subject to your elders. All of you clothe yourselves with humility toward one another. For God is opposed to the proud. That, that means he sets himself up in battle array, battle armament against the pride in our life and the pride among his people. But for those who are pursuing peace, there is an overflow of his grace, an overflow of his kindness. He is opposed to the proud, but he gives grace to the humble. Our fellowship should be marked by humility of spirit. And let me note this. This is not the kind of humility of natural temperament that can be found at times in the world. There are humble people in the world who aren't believers, who don't really think highly of themselves. They're not really pursuing those things. But that's not what he's talking about here. And we're thankful for that, of course. But Christian humility is of a different nature. It is of a different course. It is of a different character. Christian and humility is grounded in and established upon two fundamental realities that only a regenerate heart can grasp and only a regenerate heart can be shaped by. In other words, these things can only be important and inwardly shaping to a regenerate heart. They can be acknowledged by someone outside of the faith who is an unbeliever, but they cannot have a conforming reality to them. 
What are those two realities that are the foundation of humility? The first is this. The regenerate heart, the true believer, has come to grasp the transcendent greatness, majesty, and holiness of God. Not only in his power, but also in his perfection. It has seen the glory of God in a way that that glory has in some way been tasted. And in this awareness becomes personally and inwardly struck, not only with a sense of smallness, there is a sense of the grandeur of God that can be held, even in some sense, by a religious person who has a large view of God. It's not only that. It's not only to be struck with a sense of our smallness before the transcendence of God. It is to be struck as well with a sense of personal guilt of the moral burden that lies upon us by our own nature because of our sins. So it is to see the majesty and the glory of God in his transcendent holiness and his glory. And the believer feels the smallness before God and feels this owedness that we have to God as the great and the holy one, as the creator and the maker of all things. There is a creator, creaturely sense that a believer has that makes us low in our own eyes, that makes us resonate with the psalmist in Psalm 8. It says, who is man that you take thought of him? Who is man that you would take thought of him? So a believer grows in humility when we grow in our understanding of who God is. Our humility is going to be directly related to our knowledge of God. You can remember famously in Scripture, Isaiah, when he walked into the presence of God, what did he do? Woe to me. Woe to me. I'm undone. I'm undone. My eyes have seen the Lord. Peter said the same thing in Luke 5.8 when he realized the majesty of Christ with whom he was in the boat. Depart from me, for I am a sinful man. It happened to John fell down at the feet of the risen Christ in a presentation of him in which he fell down as a dead man. So this is the awareness of God's holiness that obliterates and destroys any sense of self-righteousness, self-exaltation, and self-reliance. It sees self as not worthy of God or worthy of any admiration or even the desire for it, but sees itself, ourselves, as undone. It sees that all wisdom, all glory, all honor, all worship, all trust, all obedience, all affection, and all things rightly belong to God and not himself. And he alone is the one who is glorious and should be enthroned upon the heart. That should be the attitude of the church. As Christians, that's the base of humility. And I just want to say again, our culture and our media and social media works against that with a vengeance. Makes everything about self. The maturing Christian and the mature Christian and the humble Christian is one that says, no, everything belongs to God. It's rightly his. It's rightly for his glory. And I don't begrudge that. I rejoice in it. My heart resonates with it, with happiness and goodness. Glory belongs to him and not to self. We say with John, he must increase, but I must decrease. Secondly, the regenerate heart grasps grace and the glory of God in Christ. The regenerate heart is humble, not only because it's tasted and seen this transcendent glory of God that shows us our smallness and his worthiness, it's also aware that being that we are personally saddled with the weight of our moral guilt, just condemnation and spiritual help and helplessness, and God has provided for us forgiveness of sin in his beloved son. He's heard our confession of sin. He's heard our call to him and he's responded in forgiving love and restoring mercy. 
And this awareness becomes, the person becomes the believer fundamentally aware, not of personal value, not of a sense of personal worth in God's forgiveness, but amazement that God would forgive one so profoundly unworthy and deserving of condemnation. That's the idea. That in our forgiveness and experience of the gospel, we have not personal, a sense of personal value, but of God's goodness in the face of our guilt and our shame. Christ then, in the humble Christian, becomes the sole affection. That's how we see Christ as our all in all. Because we realize that in ourselves, of ourselves, we have corruption, we have condemnation, we have weakness, and we have failure. In Christ, we have everything that God has promised and provided for us. And that is the foundation then of Christian humility. That's why we're humble people. The most humble people on the face of the earth should be Christians. There's no sense of entitlement, but rather gratitude. There's no longing for the self to be noticed or honored or exalted or even in any way receiving accolades, but is self-forgetting, self-forgetting. And I want to just make a comment here because sometimes this can be wrongly understood, this humble in spirit. What does that mean? Sometimes we equate humbleness with, oh, I'm so terrible. I'm so bad at that. I'm so you know, unattractive, I'm so unskilled, I'm so, I'm such a terrible person, I'm such at this, and we go, oh, no, you're not, you know, you're great, you know, everybody loves you, you're fantastic, you're the bomb. Whatever we might say to someone, which I would just tell you, by the way, is the worst thing that you could do, it's feeding into an incredible amount of pride, incredible amount of pride. When somebody says that, or if we say that, we're not being humble what we're saying is, I really want to be all those things. I really want to be smart and attractive. I really want to be admired by others, but I'm not, and it causes me great distress. The humble person says, no, I, I am all of those things. I am weak, I'm failing, and you don't even know the half of it. I'm lowly before God, and I see in Him everything that my soul needs and everything that my soul desires. I see his greatness. I see nothing belongs to me anyway. So if my circumstances are such that they're not what I desire, that's okay because the one over my circumstances has the right over my life. He's the potter. I'm the clay. That's, and that's good and that it's right. And so this is the kind of humility and spirit that should be a part of our lives as believers that we should be growing in. We should be those who continually say, not just at the moment of salvation, but throughout our lives... Like the publican in Luke 18, 14, who just says, unwilling to look, lift his eyes to heaven, says, Lord, be merciful to me, the sinner. That's all you ever will be is a sinner who has received grace from God, who's received mercy. And to him, all praise, honor, and glory should go. So humility is self-forgetting. Humility understands grace, understands the majesty of God. And I would add this, a third component. That humility, and this fits with the others, or the second really. The regenerate heart has tasted of the kindness of God and the love of God. He says that in verse 3 of chapter 2. If you have tasted the kindness of the Lord. That's where humility comes from. From knowing that God has shed love on even me. On even me. That God has commanded and determined to set his love on me before the foundation of the world. It should be amazement that God has forgiven us of our sins. 
Again, it doesn't show how valuable we are. It shows how incredibly gracious and glorious he is. Our value is in Christ. I thought of the woman uh, at this point in Luke chapter 7. What did she do? Remember, she was at the table with Jesus and she was wetting his feet with her tears. The Pharisee was offended at this because he knew what kind of woman she was. She had lots of sins. He was offended that she would be in his home and that he would let her touch him. And Jesus challenges him and says, Simon, tell me, who's going to love more, the one who's forgiven a great debt or one who's forgiven a small debt? And he says, well, the one who's forgiven a greater debt, I'm paraphrasing. And Jesus said, look at this woman. Her sins, which are many, have been forgiven. Therefore, her love is great. Her love is overflowing. It's honoring to me that she would be so broken before me. That's the kind of attitude or understanding of the gospel that allows us to be loving, sympathetic, same-minded, kind-hearted, brotherly. Humility before God and one another is bound in a grasp of His love to us, the grace of His forgiveness, the restoration that we received in Christ, and it's only from that foundation that we can extend it out to others. It's only from that foundation. So we can't put on love and say, I'm just going to determine to start loving one other people until we've begun to grasp the love that God has extended to us in Christ and experience that grace. Well, I'm going to save the next part for because I don't want to rush through too much for next week. But this is a good place. This is a good place for us to realize that we are people who stand before a watching world as those who've received grace. How does the... How does the world believe our message? How does they believe the reality of the gospel in us when we treat one another as if Christ truly is Lord? When we treat one another as if we truly have received grace? When we bear each other's burdens? When we bear with each one another, one another in our differences with a same-mindedness that pursues unity out of love? When we grasp the gospel and see that all is from Him, through Him, and to Him, And to him belongs the glory forever. And only him belongs the glory. And so we remember that in the table. Paul tells us in 1 Corinthians 11, we'll read it later, that in the table we proclaim the Lord's death until he comes. We proclaim that our union with one another is built only on and fully in Christ's redeeming love for us. We take these elements, we're saying... And we're communicating that we are the body of Christ, that we have trusted in him, that we have renounced our former sins, and we have committed ourselves to pursue a life of holiness and righteousness, a life of continual confession, a life of obedience. And we are enabled to do this by his spirit. So pray and prepare your hearts as I pray too, and then the men will come, and I think John will play for us. And uh, as the men hand out the elements, and then we'll take it together. Father, we do thank you for your great mercy to us in Christ. See how great a love you tell us that you have bestowed on us, that we who are here this morning who know you should be called children of God. And such we are. Thank you for your tenderness, your mercy, your grace, your continual forgiveness and your kindness to us the way you supply us with so many good things, the greatest of which is reconciliation with you, is is that 
intimate invitation to come to you, the throne of grace, in the time of our need. We do ask you to work in us this life. Make us quick confessors of sin, quick obeyers. Expose in us where there is anything that would destroy this ideal of Christian fellowship, where there's pride and self-will, where we hold on to wrongs committed against us, where we hold on to a sense of self-exaltation rather than gladly lowering ourselves, where we justify sin rather than confessing and forsaking it. Expose these things in us and lead us in the everlasting way, the way that is right, the way that is good, the way that is marked by the beauty of harmony and joy and unity. Work these things in us and even now as we remember you, O Christ, in the table that you have commanded. And it's in your name we pray. All creatures of our God and King Lift up your voice and with us sing Hallelujah, Son and 
praise the Spirit, three in one. Oh, praise Him, oh, praise Him. Alleluia, Alleluia, Alleluia. It's a time to, to look at our lives, but the table is not merely a time of examination. It is a time of rejoicing. It is a time of blessing, of remembering that we are a part of a kingdom that is coming. We are a part of a kingdom that will never end. We are a part of those who have received redemption in Christ Jesus, the forgiveness of sin. We are those who have been given a hope for a salvation yet to be revealed in all of its fullness and glory. We are those in whom it is said that every promise in Christ Jesus is yes and amen. We are those in whom it's said that we will one day stand before God and hear those and holy and blameless. Hopefully and hear those words, well done, good and faithful servant, enter into the joy of your master. We are the ones who will forever have an intimate name of that Christ gives us on our heads, on our foreheads. We are those who forever will live in fellowship with one another here and every believer that's ever existed and all of the holy angels in the presence of the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit in a radiant glory for time without end. So we're testifying to all of those things when we take these elements and we are glorifying God for his grace and his mercy to us, plucked, as it were, out of the fires of our own sin and the condemnation of God to receive his mercy. And so we do so with great joy and gratitude. Paul said, I received from the Lord that which I also delivered to you, that the Lord Jesus in the night in which he was betrayed took bread. And when he had given thanks, he broke it. And he said, this is my body, which is for you. Do this in remembrance of me. Let's eat together. It is Christ's body that he took on, that the eternal son took on to himself to live what is described as a life without sin, to do the will of the Father, to give himself up as a sacrifice for us that we might share in his life. And this cup is representative. It is a symbol of his blood, of his death, his violent death on our behalf. He who offered himself up as a guilt offering shall see the fruit of that offering of which we are a part of it. A fruit of that sacrifice. And this blood and this cup with a red color is a reminder to us that our salvation came at the cost of his blood. But in the cost of his blood, he has completed everything required for the new covenant. And that we proclaim his death and his return when we take this together. Let's drink. John, lead us in a closing hymn and then maybe you could close us in prayer. You would stand with me. And here it is. Number 385. If you would open your hymnals to hymn number 385, Near the Cross, we'll close with that.
Jesus, keep me near the cross. There a precious fountain, free to all a healing stream, flows from Calvary's mountain. In the cross, in the cross, be my glory ever. Till my raptured soul shall find rest beyond the river. Let's close with a word of prayer. Dear God, we thank you for what you have done, knowing that you are the one who saves, you are the one who, have call, who has called us, you have done all of the work, Lord. It is not by our own uh, works, it is by you, you who have saved, dying on the cross for our sin, paving a way by rising again from the dead so that we might have life eternal, restoring a right relationship with you, God. We thank you for what you've done. We thank you for your grace, Lord, and your mercy. God, help us to live in light of these things and to walk uh, humbly uh, with each other, to walk um, in an understanding way with each other. Lord, um, thinking of others as more important than ourselves. We, help, we ask that you help us to do these things, Lord. We ask that you give us strength in these things, that we might glorify you. In your name we pray, amen. shall find rest beyond the river.